turning this evening to the Gospel of Mark, the 10th chapter of Mark's Gospel. As we approach the Lord's table, we're reminded of the work of our Lord at Calvary. Mark chapter 10 and verse 35. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, come unto him, saying, Master, we would that thou shouldest do for us whatsoever we shall desire. What a request. And he said unto them, What would ye that I should do for you? How sweet of our Lord, how condescending he is for treating them in such a gentle way. You and I would have blown them off the face of the earth. How dare you? How, how audacious of you to come and ask me such a question. What is it that you want me to do? They said unto him, Grant unto us that we may sit one on thy right hand and the other on thy left hand in thy glory. But Jesus said unto them, You know not what you ask. I'm afraid that many of our requests fall into that, our prayer requests fall into that category. You don't know what you're asking. Can you drink of the cup that I drink of? They had no idea what was about to transpire and how bitter that cup would taste. And even if they'd answered, yes, we are able, they had no idea exactly how the depths of that cup. Can you drink of the cup that I drink of and be baptized with the baptism that I'm baptized with? Of course, he's not speaking of water baptism. He and they had already been baptized. This is an overwhelming immersion of the weight of Calvary, the weight of the sin of man, the rejection of the, those dearest to him, the horrible pain and agony of Calvary. Are you ready to be immersed into all of that? And they said unto him, we can. They were not deterred. We're ready. And Jesus said to them, You shall indeed drink of the cup that I drink of. And with the baptism that I am baptized, with all shall you be baptized. But to sit on my right hand and on my left hand is not mine to give. One of the most curious statements in the Scripture coming from the second part of the Godhead. Even in the intricacies of those co-equal parties, there obviously are relegated things and mysteries to each that we cannot fully understand. But all we do know here is that Jesus said it was not His to give. So that's one of those things we bow before and wonder at. But it shall be given to them for whom it is prepared. Another overwhelming statement. What did they ask to sit on one side and the other in Jesus in His glory? Somebody that has been prepared for. And when the ten heard it, they began to be much displeased with James and John. That's how we would have responded. How dare you ask the Lord to be in those positions of honor? And our secret motive would be, what about us? What about me? Where is my place? If James, you James and you John are sitting on the right hand and the left hand, where do you think we're going to sit? 
But Jesus called them to him and saith unto them, Ye know that they which are counted to rule over the Gentiles exercise lordship over them. And their great ones exercise authority upon them. But so shall it not be among you. He's telling his disciples who will be apostles, things are different in my kingdom. There's the kingdom of this world and there's a spiritual kingdom. And things work differently in the realm of the spirit. In the realm of the church, things function differently than what they do on Wall Street or downtown or in other places. It's a far cry of what is greatness and what is authority and all the things that the Lord has for us in the church compared to that which is in the world. It shall not be among you, but whosoever will be great among you shall be your minister. And whosoever of you that will be chiefest shall be servant of all. That is not what they wanted to hear. For even, our text is in verse 45, for even the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto. What could they give him? What could they do for him? He had to do everything for them, didn't he? For even the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. Our gracious Heavenly Father, as we approach your table, we are rebuked and we are moved at the words we've just read. But most of all, we stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene. And wonder how he could love us, sinners condemned unclean. How marvelous, how wonderful. Lord, as we contemplate these things tonight, we pray that you'd bless us and help us. We're so feeble, we're so dense. We have ears that do not often hear and eyes that do not see. Would you equip us, we pray, by your Spirit and come near us. And visit your church tonight, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The Gospel of Mark evolves or revolves around a single verse, and it is the verse of our text in chapter 10. Jesus, even the Son of Man, came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. Mark takes us right to the crux of the matter in his brief, straightforward way. And he goes right to the cross. He shows us Jesus our Lord as a servant. The Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister. And then he gave his life as a sacrifice. To give his life a ransom for many. Mark was writing his gospel especially for the Romans. The Romans were a people of action. They were focused on getting things done as we contemplate the vast Roman Empire. The sun never set on the Roman Empire. Mark has fewer Old Testament quotations than any of the other gospel writers, either Matthew or Luke. Mark interprets Aramaic words that would mean nothing to the Romans. They would have no point of reference. And 
he takes the effort to make them understand what those words mean. And he explains Jewish customs with the Roman readers who might not be familiar with them. The Romans could be convinced by the logic of deeds rather than intellectual discussions. And so Mark is brief and succinct and is a, a gospel of action. They built bridges, the Romans did, and aqueducts and roads that are still in use today. They, Because they were doers and builders, Mark shows them that Jesus was a doer. There's little discourse, little conversation in the Gospel of Mark. While John and the other Gospel writers record conversations given, you see very little of that, although we see this one of our in our Lord discussing with his disciples. But on the whole, there are very few conversations or records of them given to us in Mark's gospel. The Romans had enslaved much of the world. They knew about servitude. Don't let the word minister fool you. It means the lowest abject servant, slave, not a servant who is hired and has a noble position in a royal household, but a slave. It would interest them to read of one who welded absolute power, but who mysteriously, at the same time, was willing to take upon himself the form of a servant. Now, that was incongruous to a Roman mind. How someone of great position and power and authority as the Messiah that Mark was purporting him to be would dare humble himself. The word humility was a word unheard of in Roman thinking. The graces that the gospel highly prizes were looked down upon by the Romans. Humility was despised. It was not something achieved, uh, sought for or desired. And so they would marvel at one who was the epitome of such. It would have interest them to read about that or to hear about that, one who was willing to take upon himself the form of a slave. Why would he do that? Why would he, if he is the creator, God of the universe, condescend and come to earth and take on a body? Their gods that they worship would do no such thing. Why would this one, if he was the, the God of gods, the absolute God of all, why would he become a servant, a slave? First of all, we see here that Jesus gave his life as a servant. It's amazing to us that the Creator would present himself in that way. Now, if you and I were planning it out, if we, and I'm not being sacrilegious in any sense, but I'm just surmising the way we think, we would have brought the Son of God, to the earth in a much different way. Fanfare and angel, angelic hosts, the legions of angels escorting him down, fully grown in regal majesty as Isaiah saw him, seizing with power and might the armies of this world, crushing all enemies in defeat. But that is not how Christ came, was it? We would do it in a Hollywood way with... Uh, unbelievable setting and and all the the surrounding accruements of a king coming to earth. We can see him introduced as a king, as Matthew did, as God, as 
Luke did, and, and many, or John, as many other things, but presenting himself as a slave is beyond our realm of comprehension. And so it is, I think, that we'll ever marvel throughout the endless ages that he who knew no sin became sin for us. That he, who indeed was the creator, the God of gods, became a servant. Our verse here tells us the Son of Man came. Mark loves verbs. And we see the action of one so great coming to earth. He came. The Lord Jesus often used the phrase, the Son of Man, to describe Himself. It is a very interesting title of our Lord. The expression occurs some 88 times in the New Testament. And when a phrase is used ever, it's important when it's used often, we better look at it and see what is meant by it. It is used 88 times in the New Testament, and all but four of them occur in the gospel setting, the gospels. The first time we read this phrase, the Son of Man, is in Matthew chapter 8 and verse 20, where we are told that the Son of Man hath not where to lay his head. Think about that for a moment. All of you will go somewhere tonight and have a place to lay your head. The Son of Man voluntarily gave up that, what we would call, not a, a luxury, but a necessity and what a description of all the things that we could use to describe our Lord. He had no place to lay his head. And the last time that we read the phrase, the Son of Man, is in John's great revelation, where we're drawn to the golden crown upon his head. In Revelation 14, verse 14, And I looked and I beheld a, a white cloud, and upon the cloud one sat like unto the Son of Man, having on his head a golden crown. The title, the Son of Man, occurs 14 times in Mark's writing. He came to us, as my mother used to sing, I can hear now in a trio of ladies uh, singing on a Sunday night, out of the ivory palaces, into a world of woe, came my Savior. His, my Lord has garments so wondrous fine with myrrh and aloes, and he describes the glories of our Savior and coming to earth, out of the ivory palaces to a world of woe. That's how he came to us. He came according to the predeterminate counsel and foreknowledge of God that Peter declares in his sermon on the day of Pentecost. It had all been settled and decided and determined in eternity past, in that sacred and intimate communion of the Godhead. He came because he chose to come, knowing the full weight, knowing the ramifications. Now, you and I make choices that we think we know what the outcome will be. For example, we get engaged and we say, I do. And uh, we never really have the full weight of what that, those two little words mean, I do. And uh, 35 years later, since I said these words right here in June of this year, I'm still learning what I do means and uh, what it looks like on a daily basis. 
we make decisions about purchases or career choices and we weigh out all the, what we think are the ramifications, all the, the, the parts of it, but we never really do know them, do, do we? But I want to remind us tonight that, that the Son of Man came knowing all the ramifications, how far it would take Him, what it would be, the pain, the agony, the rejection, the cursing, the embarrassment, the stripping of himself bare in public, the plucking of his beard. And, but, but beyond all of that, which is in by no means making light of that, the full weight of the sin of man crushing the Son of God on the cross. He, he came knowing that's what it would be. There were no surprises. It had all been predetermined, decided upon, and agreed to. All creation groaning and travailing under the weight of man's sin rejoiced to see him come. The devil knew that he must kill him. And so he decided he would do that in the cradle and get him out of the way. The devil was enraged at his coming. He had done everything he could to thwart it. He must rally all his forces of evil to thwart this heavenly mission. Now that it had actually come, he'd done everything in history with the, the, of, of man to thwart the coming of the Savior. But after he got here, he must abort this mission. He learned in the garden that the seed of woman would bring a Savior. Through the seed of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So Satan tried to corrupt him. We've been studying the sons of, of Jacob, and, and Satan did a work, didn't he, in that family. It's amazing that, as we marveled this morning, that the Savior could come through that, that group. He tried to corrupt the woman's seed, or at time to annihilate the, the royal line. Once he got wind of, of that, he, he forced and put all of the forces of his attacks upon it. At one time, evil Athaliah massacred all the royal seed except for one little boy that she overlooked. One baby. Manasseh, the son of one of Judah's godliest kings, plunged Judah into religious apostasy, moral depravity, and decadence. But the promise was given. The predetermined council had decided the seal of the Holy One was upon it. The promised seed was kept alive and protected by the providence of God. The same providence that oversees you and brings you to a desired end that will cause you to testify in heaven one day, Jesus led me all the way. That same providence oversaw the infant Jesus. At last, in a manger with stinking animals and manure and filth, the Son of Man came. 4,000 years of constant warfare and interference from, from Satan with all kinds of schemes and plots and plans and corruptions was ended for a while. And the Son of Man came. Jesus was born. The angels did sing and the shepherds rejoiced and though it was with obscure people and not many knew it, the, the celebrations were held. Satan had lost. 
For many long centuries, Satan ruled, or so it seemed, with unrestricted right-of-way and power. Adam's fall meant that the human spirit was no longer indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Man was cut off from God. He had died spiritually. A major creative work would have to take place to restore the dead spirit of man. Everything in creation groaned under the curse of God. Thorns invaded the earth. Go look in your garden and see if sin does not rule. Go look at the crabgrass and the nutgrass. Go look at the, how hard it is to produce fruit in a garden and remind yourself of the fall of man. When you're tired at the end of a day, go look in the mirror and see the ravages of the fall of man. When the doctor pronounces disease and and all kinds of maladies to these frail bodies, remember that we're under the curse of the fall of man. Famine and blight have ravaged and raged, and they do to this day. Poison and, and snake bites and ferocious animals turned and threatened humanity. The creation is indeed groaning. Even as we meet tonight, the groan of the curse of sin is on all that we can see. And in the spirit world, where we cannot see, if we were to pull back the veil of the unseen, as the Bible does from time to time to show us the ugliness of, the, of sin and, and Satan and the demons, we're given a preview there of what hell is like with a gathering demoniac cutting himself and cutting himself. And on and on throughout the, the Bible, we see examples of it. Satan's demons roamed relentlessly and took captive souls at will, the Scripture tells us. Bondage and darkness prevailed. He has demons organized like an intricate army duplicating the very hosts of heaven with principalities and powers and the rulers of darkness and wicked spirits in high places with strongholds. You don't see that, but that's there. Every moment with all the schemes and the machinations of the demon world. But the Son of Man has come. Hallelujah, what a Savior. He's come. And the devil has met his match. Things will never be the same. Satan has been allowed in the sovereign plan of God a little space, a little time, a little power, and I want you to know that Satan knows that his time is short. All of heaven's attention riveted on our, is riveted on our planet and all of God's invincible purposes are focused on His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. He came. He came from heaven, but we're also told in our text here in verse 45 why He came. He came not to be ministered to, but to minister. He came to live an absolutely obedient life. Think of it. Never varying in one iota, one moment, not in thought or intent from the Father's perfect will. He did not come to be served, but to serve. We get a clear picture of this in the upper room the night he was betrayed. The custom of that day, as you well know, that when guests arrived in, in your home, a servant would wash and dry all the guests' feet. 
It was the job of the lowest slave. But on this night, there was no household servant to do that job. Who would wash the disciples' feet? Those who ask in our text, can we sit on the right hand and on the left hand? We're certainly not thinking, can I, can I get to wash the feet tonight? Not one of the disciples felt like it was in their job description. We hear a lot about job descriptions, what our job is. That was not in their job description. So the feet went unwashed. It was to be done at the beginning of the meal. It was unthinkable in that day how they ate, the proximity of feet near the reclining head in a day when people wore sandals and walked through dirty, filthy, manure, strong streets. Uh, It was unthinkable that you would let people go that long since they were about to recline and they would usually sit up on their elbows with their feet behind them or their feet near the head of another one as they were around the room eating in in that way. It's very different than the way we eat today. I'm sure that it had to be thought of who, why hasn't somebody brought up the, the obvious situation that the feet have not been washed. And these men being the men that they are, I'm sure they're probably making faces and looking around and, you know, you know what's going to happen here? None of them budged. None of them went to get the clay water jar and the basin, the towel to wash the feet. One of the most moving scenes in all the scripture is finally the Lord Jesus got the basin and the water and washed all of their feet. He took the part of a slave coming not to be ministered unto, but to minister. Remember, who the human author of our text is, we've mentioned that, is Mark. And that's significant when you think of serving. This is the very area where where Mark had failed miserably. The church at Antioch had decided at the, the injunction of the Holy Spirit to send out two of their finest men as missionaries. Don't you know how sad it was for the church at Antioch to give up Paul and Barnabas from ministering to them to send them to, to the mission field. The church gave them their blessing. They laid their hands upon them, commissioning them for service. And Acts chapter 13 verse 5 tells us, and they had also John Mark to their minister, or to be their slave. John's job on the missionary journey was to do whatever Paul and Barnabas needed done. And what they needed done was things being carried, uh, the the menial jobs. He was just a general flunky on that missionary trip. Dangerous travel, travel arrangements, all the things that would need to be done. He had volunteered to go along as their errand boy. They had John Mark to their minister. There was much work to be done which is what ministry largely is. It's largely the the mundane work. It is, after all, we remind ourselves, the Lord's work, not the Lord's hobby, not the Lord's playtime, not the Lord's diversion. 
It's the Lord's work. Hauling baggage, finding places to stay, making tents, preparing food, running errands. All of this is Christian service. All of it is mission work. Christian service is hard, hard work. Mark was Barnabas' nephew. And we aren't sure what happened, but we can read between the lines. And we have to be careful about reading between the lines, but let's just put it this way. For some reason, it just marks, I'm not cut out for this. As they crossed over the main, to the mainland, things began to change. The, the romance of the mission trip was wearing thin. The heavy bundles and, and taking commands from Paul and Barnabas, or whatever the circumstances were, got got more and more distasteful as as work settled in and this this nostalgic or this exotic travel began to be something very different than maybe what he had in mind. Lots of people love mission trips. They just don't like the Lord's work. (laughs) They love going somewhere and seeing new stuff and eating new food and meeting new people. But to cross the street in hot Alabama afternoon and give out flyers about the vacation Bible school, well, that's, that's something altogether different, isn't it? Evidently, Mark became displeased with Paul's leadership. Paul told them of his plans to go up through the Tarsus Mountains into Galatia. A dangerous, dangerous, scary trip. And I'm sure it alarmed Mark. He had heard the stories. He knew the, the, the robbers, the highwaymen. He knew the danger. It was dangerous, one of the most dangerous parts of the world. And I'm sure as Mark, as, John, uh, as Paul, I can see him drawing in the sand the map. And here we're here, we're going here. And he, as he began to call out places and, and, to, and to plot their, their journey, Mark became, you, you've got to be kidding. We're going there? Spend how many days where? With those people? Doing what? The whole area was filled with robbers and criminals and mean people. Mark made up his mind as he lay under the stars one night. I don't think I'm cut out for this. Maybe I missed it when, when I thought the Lord wanted me to do this. He went back home. And this caused a break in Paul's and Barnabas' relationship. They had no small disputation over John MacArthur. John MacArthur. John Mark. <laughs> they may have argued about that too. I don't know. But if it was not a small disputation, what was it then? If the Holy Spirit... Isn't it interesting how the Lord describes that? It was no small disputation. That means it was a... A big one. Tempers flared and they got red in the face and argued about the uh, the value of John Mark. And I, I can I can hear Paul saying he just needs to grow up. This is what it's this is where we're going. This is what we've got to do. And we can hear Barnabas. Remember what Barnabas? How the Holy Spirit describes him? He was the son of consolation. He was mercy. Now, now, Paul, listen, he's a, he's a young guy. He, we've got to give him... As they argued into the night, John Mark was packing his things and he, 
he went back home. Barnabas took Mark back to Cyprus, and Paul found a replacement for him. Those things happen. Years later, from a Roman prison, writing a final word to Timothy, he urged Timothy to come and to bring Mark with him for he is profitable to me for the ministry, for the work. John Mark is, is profitable. He's good. He's, he's valuable for the work. Mark had finally learned to become a faithful servant of the faith after all. Aren't you glad for John Mark's in the Bible? Aren't you glad for these biographical, biographical sketches that encourage us what caused Paul's change of heart about Mark? Someone is, and we can surmise, but we have to be careful, but someone said maybe he got a copy of Mark's gospel account to read. Some say Mark was the first to write down, of the, the gospel writers to write down the gospel account under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. In it, if that had been the case, Paul would have, been, have seen the emphasis on servanthood all through Mark's gospel. Mark had failed once as a servant, as we all have failed many, many times. The opportunity has come. There's a need, and we can feel it, but because of comfort or luxury or fear or whatever, we have demurred and said, no, not me, not now, not yet. But graciously, the Lord has continued to give us opportunities to serve him and to serve his church, and we praise him for that, don't we? Mark got it. And he, he lived it out to the Holy Spirit, chose him to, to write part of the Bible. It's amazing, isn't it? The grace of God. Jesus came to serve, to serve his Father's will from heaven, to serve his Father's children on earth. And should we not do the same? If the Savior came with one agenda, one thing on his to-do list, whatever God the Father says, and that's to wash, if that's to wash the feet of his children, I'll do that. Is that what you signed up for? Acts 10.38 sums up our Lord's life on earth. It's an amazingly simple epitaph of our Lord's summary of his life. He went about doing good. What a statement. He went about doing good. Two key words in Mark's gospel are immediately and straightway. You see those words over and over again, immediately, straightway. You see the, 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 the speed, the, the, the fastness, the, the intent of Mark's emphasis. The Lord never allowed himself to be hurried. He got everything accomplished. He never was at a loss of what to do and when to do it or not having enough time. One of the key things that we say, I just don't have enough time. I've run out of time. Where is this day gone? I to, I've got all this stuff to do. We never see him in, in, a, in a flurry or moving in a, in a breakneck speed. He was always plodding along in the perfect will of God, accomplishing all in that day that he was to do. 
at the same time, while he was never hurried out of so-called emergency, so many of our emergencies really are not that, he never wasted time either. He gave all his all without reserve to whatever it was at hand that he was doing. Our Lord, when he talked with someone, listened to them intently. He looked at them in the face. He he gave a Samaritan woman who men wouldn't even talk to his interest into her. He showed interest in her, her background, where she was from, and most importantly, in her soul. Do we? The missionary William Carey said, and what a man he was, one of the most brilliant missionaries that were ever sent out. He taught in the, the Indian colleges and universities to support the mission work. And he, he was so valuable to the Indian government. He was almost like an ambassador instead of a missionary. And it was there one day in his college classes because the, the good Baptist back home often did not send his support and he was teaching to, to pay the salaries of his workers. When John Marshman, his assistant, came to let him know that, that all he'd worked for for the last several years had been gone up in smoke. All the translations of the, the Bible into the Indian language, his dictionary that he'd written... Years and years of work in ashes. You know what William Carey said when someone asked him about the work that he'd accomplished at the end of his life with a sick wife, a wife who lost her, her mind, a son who was wayward, all kinds of, of pressures. William Carey summed it up like this. He said, I can plod. That's what I can do. I can take one step at a time, one day at a time, one job at a time. I can plod. I can do that, can't you? I don't say that boastfully, but I can plod. Can you not do that? We can plod. Secondly, not only did our Lord come, He he gave His life as a sacrifice. Mark tells us, The Son of Man came to give His life as a ransom for many. A ransom is something paid on behalf of others. It is usually seen in an ugly way. Someone has been taken hostage. They're demanding a price. They're holding people against their will. The price has to be paid. Those who are coming up with the ransom money are begrudging it. Governments don't like to pay for hostages, and often they refuse to do so. But the ransom price is usually the sign of an ugly, sordid affair. It is the Greek word lutron, and the the price for redeeming, the, the ransom price for a slave. This is the substitutionary atonement of Christ. The price, what was the price? How much does this slave cost? We read about it, didn't we? Peter, you're not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunged beneath that flood lose 
all their guilty stains. What a price. What a lavish, expensive price. Think of the ransom Jesus paid for us. First, He gave up His supernatural life. He thought it not robbery to be equal with God. Why? Because He was equal with God. Yet He laid aside in some mysterious way that we do not fully understand the glory that He held and had and enjoyed from eternity past and limited Himself. The limitless one who cannot be limited by clocks or calendars or space or time limited Himself to a body. Oh, the limitations of this body. But not just a body, a baby's body. The most helpless thing on earth is the human infant. He who spoke worlds into existence is depending on a, a mother and a father to feed him and to teach him and to train him and to to protect him. Think of him stooping to create man, all the intricate cells and the arteries and the networks and the nerve endings. Our hearts pump a hundred thousand times a day, moving at a high speed enough to fill a swimming pool. Our eyes are like amazing cameras, a brain greater than any computer imaginable. After he created the amazing machinery of the human body, he gave man life. Jesus was more than an amazing man. He was supernatural. His life was divine. The one who gave life to Adam came into the world to give his life as a ransom for many. What a cost. What a cost. We ask that question all the time, don't we? How much does that cost? How much does this cost? We compare prices. We look at prices. Everything that that comes our way, we want the best price, the best for the, the lowest amount of money. and it's a, it's a matter of always comparing or thinking about the cost. What will it cost? What will I have to exchange for this purchase? What is the trade-off? His life was a sinless life. We cannot comprehend that. Absolutely Without sin, every clean animal brought, bought in the Old Testament into the altar had to be inspected. And meticulously, the high priest would go over the animal to make sure it was without spot or blemish. You didn't just bring one of your flock to the sacrifice. You didn't just say, well, this will do for the Lord, for the church. You didn't save the best for yourself. You gave the very best the perfect specimen of what you were, you were bringing to the Lord. He was sinless as a baby. All the Gospels underscore and point out His sinlessness. That's what enrages people. That's what enraged people in His own day. That's what enrages people when you give them the Gospel, that, that Jesus was a man who became a man who was sinless. He was sinless as a baby, as a boy, as a teen, as a man, everywhere and at all times. Three times in the space of an hour, Pilate declared him to be sinless. He said, I find no fault in him. I've examined him according to the law. He's committed no crime. 
The dying thief recognized his sinlessness. The life that Jesus laid down for us at Calvary was a sinless life. So what if someone gave their lives for someone else? And I'm not minimizing the sacrifice of people, but me giving my life for you as one sinner for another sinner, that would do nothing for your eternity or your salvation. He gave himself, the Bible describes it, the just for the unjust. He was made sin for us who knew no sin. No one else could give their life. It would just be one sinner exchanging his life for another sinner accomplishing nothing. The life he gave was an infinite life without beginning or end. The span of time that he was here, the 33 years he was here on earth, does not contain the the endless, infinite one, the Son of God. A life that was from everlasting to everlasting. A finite life cannot be given as a ransom for many. Mark reminds us, the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto. What could we give him? Could we give him advice? Could we loan him some of our intelligence? What could we give him? The Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. And for that we praise his name. And remember his work on the cross for us in our place. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we marvel the simplicity and the truth of the word we just read. And we pray, Lord, that you would show us these things as we come to your table. We come confessing. We come rejoicing in the the free grace of our Savior. We come marveling at the lavish expense of the payment that you gave on our behalf. Why would you love us? Why would you choose us? Why would you come for us? We marvel that we are clothed and in our right minds and in the family of God. We have nothing to claim except the cross. And we praise you for it. In Jesus' precious name.